Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander, and this is Majority 54. I'm always telling you to use your platform, and I try to lead by example with this podcast. In that vein, I have an exciting announcement. By far, one of the most popular episodes of Majority 54 ever was my conversation last season with Shannon Watts. Shannon's the founder of Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America. I can't tell you how many times somebody has come up to me and told me that they joined Moms Demand Action after listening to that conversation. I'm proud of that because it's one of many ways that we have used our platform on this show. Now, as you know, I have a book coming out on Tuesday. It's called Outside the Wire, 10 Lessons I've Learned in Everyday Courage. And I want to use that platform to support Moms Demand Action too. So I'm pleased to tell you that starting now and lasting until a week after the book hits shelves, for every copy sold, Diana and I will make a personal contribution to Moms Demand Action in every town for gun safety. I told you last week, I'm really proud of this book. I wrote this for anyone who looks at the world, wants to change it, thinks maybe upping their political involvement is the answer, but then looks at people in politics and says, if I do that, I might lose myself in it. I might lose my faith in the world, or I just might have to do things that I don't agree with. Outside the wire is an army term. It means leaving the safety of the base. And the book is about how going literally outside the wire in Afghanistan prepared me to go figuratively outside the wire in politics. Basically, nobody ever changed the world from inside their comfort zone. So I wrote a book that will help you navigate and change the world when you leave yours. I saw someone on Twitter who read an early copy and they described it as a more personal and raw Majority 54. I'd say that's pretty accurate because like this show, it even comes with jokes. But good news, there's no ads. If you order online before it comes out on Tuesday, you can go to jasonkanderbook.com and get a signature insert. And all along the way, you'll be supporting the fight for common sense gun reform. Okay, let's get to today's episode. This episode is for everyone who has listened to this show, thought about the change they'd like to make in the world, and hesitated to take action because they either weren't an expert or they weren't directly affected by the thing that they wanted to change. We've been debating the Muslim ban since the 2016 campaign, and we've even done an episode of this show on Islamophobia. But today, we wanted to tell you about the woman behind the legal fight for refugees. She's not a longtime human rights attorney or a former refugee herself. In fact, when Becca Heller started the International Refugee Assistance Project, she wasn't even a lawyer yet. Now, that organization is helping people in over 70 countries. Becca is also one of the people who organized volunteer attorneys to assist refugees at airports when the Muslim ban first came down. The Muslim ban may not lead the news every day anymore, but the damage it's doing continues. 
And this is my conversation with Becca about what can be done. My name is Becca Heller. I am the director of the International Refugee Assistance Project. We organize law students and lawyers around the world to provide legal aid for refugees and displaced people. And I care about this because I think there are millions and millions of people all over the world who have been forcibly displaced from their homes by circumstances that are often violent and wildly beyond their control. And I think that the rest of the world has a responsibility to help them find a legal, safe way to start their lives over in a safe place. And you started this while you were still in law school or just out of law school? Yeah, I started it between my first and second year in law school, um, largely by accident, actually. I was doing a summer internship in the Middle East, and I kept hearing about all of these Iraqi refugees in Jordan. And I felt that as a U.S. citizen, I had some obligation to understand the humanitarian fallout of my own country's foreign policy. You know, regardless of how anyone felt about the Iraq war, I think it was clear that the the massive displacement that happened as a result was sort of America's responsibility to address. So I was able to go to Jordan and meet with six different refugee families over the course of a week. And I was really only trying to learn sort of about their circumstances, just what was happening. And I thought it might be interesting for them to get to talk to a U.S. citizen about what their experience had been. And to my surprise, every single one of the families identified their biggest issue, bigger than, you know, where their next meal was coming from or their kids going to school or health care, as essentially a, a legal issue, which is that, you know, they couldn't go back to Iraq because someone had tried to kill them or had hurt their family or something kind of equally terrible. But it wasn't feasible for them to stay in Jordan, so they needed some way to get to a safe country. But the system that was set up to decide who gets to go to safety and process them was just completely unintelligible, um, both to refugees at the time and, frankly, largely to me, even as a, a trained attorney now. So I felt like if I were in that situation where I was in, you know, what's essentially a trial um, or an adjudication and where my life depended on the result, the thing that I would really want was a good lawyer. Um, and I returned to law school and started organizing students and uh, eventually lawyers when we realized that we couldn't practice law without lawyers to represent the needs of individual refugees trying to navigate these crazy processes of resettlement. Initially, and even now through the organization, it's not just lawyers who are doing this work. It's, it's law students too, right? Yeah, exactly. So it, it started out just as law students. And then our supervising professor called us into his office one day and was like, you guys aren't working on cases, are you? And we were like pretty stupid about the law, but not completely stupid. So we were sort of like, oh, Mike, that's an interesting question. Why do you ask? And he said, because that's illegal, it's considered the unauthorized practice of law. Um, because in the U.S., in order to engage in anything legal, you need an actual attorney on the case. So we left his office sort of being like, you know, we better find some lawyers. Where are we going to find lawyers? And then we realized lawyers come here to try to recruit us all the time. What if we turn that around and say, hey, do you want to get to know some of us? If you supervise us on these cases, then... Um, you'll have a chance to kind of like sink your fingers into some law students, get to know them better. We can work on the cases with good supervision and everybody wins, including the refugee clients. So these are like corporate lawyers who are trying to recruit people out of Yale Law. It's all kinds of different 
lawyers. I mean, it started out, I think the first firm we recruited was a corporate law firm. Um, but we have, you know, private attorneys who work with us. We have in-house counsel at multinational corporations. We have lawyers all over the world. Um, it's not it's not limited to corporate lawyers. The lawyers do do the cases pro bono. So it has to be attorneys who are in a position to take on a case for free and have time to do it. Um, but it's, you know, the numbers are are pretty staggering of people who want to be involved. Well, I love that, though. That's about the most millennial thing ever. It's, it's hey, you want to recruit us from our elite law school to come and work with you? Then we're going to recruit you to help us save the world. Yeah, put your money where your recruitment is. I think that's great. All right, so then tell me about January 28th, 2017 and the executive order and how all this started on your end. I'm actually going to start on that Monday um, which was trying to do the math, I think, January 23rd. Um, that was the first kind of full working day that President Trump spent in office. He was inaugurated on a Friday. He took the weekend off to golf. So the first day that business was actually conducted in the White House was that Monday. And no one really knew, you know, of all the kind of sane to insane campaign promises that were made which ones were actually going to be implemented and what was going to come first. And about halfway through the day on Monday, someone leaked to us a photograph, essentially, of the text of what was to become the Muslim ban later that week. It was a, a photograph of a desktop monitor, I think, inside the White House that showed the full text of the travel ban on it. And uh, we realized, you know, holy crap, Um it's, it's the Muslim ban that's going to be first. It included a ban for Syrian refugees, which also made it into the final version. And we sort of realized that we were going to be on call right away. So we started calling all of our clients who had valid permission to travel but haven't traveled yet. It's, it's pretty arduous um, even just to depart a place that, that you've lived in your whole life. Um, and even in the Middle East, you know, I, I can look at my family's roots and say like, oh, we've lived in Northern California since 1978. Um, or my family, my my broader family has been in Chicago since the early 20th century. Um, but I think in the Middle East, they can say, you know, my family has been farming this piece of land for 3000 years. So tearing yourself away from that is really wrenching emotionally, but it's also really complicated pragmatically. You're literally selling or getting rid of every single thing you own with the intention of never coming back. Like you're liquidating your entire life and trying to take it with you in a suitcase. So that's a really time-consuming process. So we had, you know, several dozen clients who we were working with who had been granted permission to travel, but were in the midst of trying to wrap up their affairs. And we called all of them and we said, you know, you need to get on a plane. The the doors to the U.S. are closing. We don't know when. No one knew when the ban was actually going to come down or what the final version would say. Um, so, so get on a plane and come in now. And um, a lot of law firms that we work with actually chipped in to cover the cost of plane tickets because when you travel on your own accord as a refugee, you have to buy your own plane ticket, which is, of course, prohibitively expensive for the vast majority of people living in these situations, um, especially when you really need to save every dollar that you have so you can come to America and start your life completely over. And I was, uh, this is also maybe kind of millennial, or maybe it's the older side of millennial because millennial is just text, but I was G-chatting with our policy director and and we sort of collectively realized in a 
in a half awake moment at about 11.30 p.m. that whenever the band came down, there would be all of these people literally midair um, who had legal permission to enter the U.S. when they took off, but who would land basically as undocumented and nobody knew what was going to happen to them. So we put out a call um, on like two listservs asking for volunteer lawyers to go to airports. And our hope was to get, you know, a couple of lawyers at each of the major international airports in the country. And within about 45 minutes, 1,600 people had signed up and crashed the form that we were using. Um, and of course, it ultimately led to thousands of lawyers and tens of thousands of of sort of civilians or non-lawyers going to airports all over the country to make it clear that America wasn't going to stand for this travel ban. Um, the ban itself came down at 4.30 p.m. on Friday, the 27th. Um, we had received assurances through a series of third parties that I didn't fully trust to have accurate information that there would be some kind of amnesty period. So, um basically that if you were, you know, midair, you already had a visa, we would let you in with no problem and that the ban would only apply to people who weren't in the course of their travel yet. Um, As it turned out, Customs and Border Protection didn't receive any instructions from the executive offices about how to implement the ban. So they ended up pretty much just detaining the vast majority of people. And we discovered that at 8.30, we had a client, Hamid Darwish, who had worked for 10 years as an interpreter for the U.S. military um, in Iraq, um, who had gotten a visa because his life was in danger as a result of his work for the U.S. And we were waiting to meet him at JFK, and his wife and their small child came out, and they were in tears, and they said they had been let go, but that Hamid had been handcuffed, and he was in a room with a bunch of other people, and they wouldn't let him out. And so that's... I mean, that's where it becomes so incredibly important that this like army of lawyers had shown up at airports. And I, I remember those images uh, of folks like holding up signs that said, I'm a lawyer uh, and how inspiring that was. Uh, so what what happens that like take us into that, like in that situation or in, or in any other? How does the lawyer get from, uh, you know, the images we saw people waiting outside security Uh, to actually being able to come in and help individuals who were in this limbo? So you can't come in and help individuals. Um, You're you're not allowed to go beyond security. And a lot of the issue is that we didn't know who the individuals were. Um, You can file something called a habeas petition, uh, which... Sounds boring and Latin-y and lawyerly, but it's actually really interesting and important. There's there's something in the Constitution called the writ of habeas corpus, which I think is one of the single most important laws we have. And what it basically says is that, like, the government can't throw you in a black hole and forget about you without letting you see a judge or talk to a lawyer or talk to your family. Um, it's what was used to say that people who are at Guantanamo are entitled to some kind of trial without being held indefinitely. Um, it's it's a really important aspect of U.S. law that we don't just disappear people the way that other, you know, tyrannical and fascist governments have. And what they were essentially doing was turning the airports into black sites. And we couldn't get like a manifest of everyone who was on the plane. And so the reason that people were at the exits holding up signs that said, I'm a lawyer in a bunch of different languages was that we realized that the best way to figure out who was inside was to figure out who was outside waiting for them. Um, Because the vast majority of people coming in, you know, were coming to see family um, or or coming for a medical procedure and had someone there to pick them up. 
So we made signs in the languages of the countries that the the Muslim ban was targeting and just canvassed all of the people waiting for someone to come out and said, you know, is, is the person that you're waiting for still inside? Have they not come up? And then we would file a habeas petition on their behalf. So why do you personally care about this so much to have dedicated your life to it? I mean, I've always known that I wanted to do something social justice or public service or activist or whatever label you want to put on it. Um, that's pretty much all I've ever done since graduating high school. I've worked on a, a number of different issues. And frankly, I, I find a lot of issues really compelling. I think that all the work that people are doing on things from, you know, criminal justice reform to climate change to to name it is is equally important. Um, I went to law school because in doing a lot of the work on these issues, I, I felt like I kept coming up against the barrier of the law where like certain changes can only take you so far and then you run headlong into the law, which is the constraints created by the institutions that are so disenfranchising to so many people. And it seemed to me that to overcome that, I needed to understand the law and and have a degree that allowed me to work to change the law a bit. And that that's really what drove me to law school. I had a friend who was doing um, organizing in Boston with folks who couldn't get a job because they had criminal convictions. Massachusetts had these insane criminal record laws at the time, which have since been changed. And we were doing a sleep out on the steps of the Capitol um, in February, which in retrospect was a terrible idea. And there were about 30 people, each of whom would have, you know, cut out their eye to help end solitary confinement. And a couple of them were people who actually had relatives um, in really just messed up situations, like one who had been held without a trial for over a year and a half. And they were asking the collective, you know, is there anyone that can help? Can anybody do anything? And and no one could because no one was a lawyer. And ultimately, to to get someone a trial, um, you need a law degree. And that was sort of the moment that I was like, oh, my gosh, I, I need to go to law school. And I was worried that I would go and spend, you know, a crazy amount of money that I didn't have. I'm still paying off my debts and three years of my life and then come out and realize that, you know, a law degree was just as ineffectual against the system as everything else. And I really haven't found that to be the case. I found having a law degree and practicing law to be an incredibly useful way, um, especially to impact institutional change. Um through litigation or advocacy or even just, you know, knowing my own rights. Are you still paying off debt? I'm still paying off debt, yes. <laughs> I have a couple still, more years. Still worth it, though. I think so. That's good. You know, Yale helps you pay off your debt, so that's a nice thing. I was listening to the radio the other day on the way to work, and there was this guy talking about how when you're in your 20s, you're just so pumped to go out at night and just party. And then when you're in your 30s, you are equally pumped to go home and go to sleep. Sleep sounds really good right now as we record these ads at 11.30 p.m. In our house. Helix Sleep matches your body to the perfect mattress so you get the best sleep of your life. That sounds so good right now. They've developed nine different mattresses tailored to specific body types and sleep preferences. Just go to helixsleep.com slash majority54, take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a mattress that's perfect for you, contouring to your body to provide unprecedented comfort and better sleep. 
36% of Helix Sleep customers report better sleep after switching to their customized mattress from Helix Sleep. Right now, they're offering up to $125 off all mattress orders. Whether you're a side sleeper, a hot sleeper, if that means... Is that me? I, if that means 76 degrees. <laughs> I have to have socks Seven. on all the time. I don't even think that's good for your feet Seven. to be that comforted with cloth all the time. 72 degrees is a negotiated number in our house. Like a plush or firm bed, they've got the mattress that will fit just right. Get up to $125 off at helixsleep.com slash majority54. That's helixsleep.com slash majority, the number 54 for $125 off your mattress order. helixsleep.com slash majority54. So switching back to, uh, to the issue at hand, what is in your opinion, the biggest piece of misinformation out there about refugees? Oh, it's so hard to pick. There are so many. I, I think I think there are a lot of mischaracterizations of refugees, both from kind of the political right and from the political left, um, which I would sum up as just like everyone's trying to lump every refugee into kind of one identity or one story, um, whether that is like a helpless war victim that we all need to swoop in and save, which I think is really problematic and also untrue, or whether it's to say that every refugee is a terrorist who has, you know, nefarious intents toward America. And the truth is that, you know, as in any group of 20 million people, the world's refugees are are a very diverse lot. Um, but the thing that they all have in common is that by definition, they went through something really terrible. They escaped. They got out. They navigated this crazy system to go to a whole new country and start their lives over again. So while while refugees don't all share a single narrative, um, I do think that every refugee, by definition, is someone who's just, you know, tenacious, creative, entrepreneurial, um, and often really patriotic. Um, I've talked about this before, but when we were bringing the litigation against the Muslim ban, um, a, a lot of our clients participated and the litigation asserted discrimination claims that said, you know, this is a ban targeting people because of their religion. And so the people who were bringing the lawsuits were saying, you know, I'm really damaged by this idea that America or America's government um, hates Muslims so much that we're banning them from coming into our country. And you would think that participating in that sort of thing would make you really angry um, I know that I get really angry participating in litigation because it's just it's very adversarial that our justice system is set up in this sort of silly way where we've decided that the best way to reach truth is for two people to take opposite sides and just fight each other, um, which is, you know, that'll be our next project. But but in talking to our clients about, you know, what what their experience was like of the lawsuit, a lot of them said it actually made them love America even more because they had spent decades living under like the regime of Saddam Hussein or the regime of Bashar al-Assad. And, and they were just flabbergasted that in America, you could sue the president and, and no one would torture you or kill you or put you in jail, um, but that you would actually get a fair hearing on your claims. So I think a lot of refugees are, are quite patriotic. And even those who aren't come with a respect for the rule of law that I think is, is really lacking, you know, even in our own administration right now. Well, I think that's a really important point about the, about patriotism because, you know, one of the, I think one of the conversations we're always having in America about patriotism is this disagreement 
about whether or not it is uh, you know loyalty to whoever's in power at the moment versus uh, loyalty to like the founding ideals and how things are supposed to work. And so I think that's very interesting that what you're saying is, is that, uh, you know, what they're doing is they're coming in and, and they're so, uh, you know, they're so awed by the system as it exists. They're not thinking about patriotism or about America in terms of who the president is at a given moment. They're thinking about it in terms of how it has been set up for over 200 years. Yeah. I, I think that, that that's really true that, you know, as bad as things feel to, to a lot of folks in America right now, it's not the same as it is in Syria. Um, so if you want people in this country who, you know, ardently believe in the rule of law and the power of the rule of law and are optimistic about the future, because that's the other thing is that, you know, by definition, if you're willing to give up everything and start over, you have to have some level of optimism about the future, like those are immigrants and refugees. Right now, we're having this conversation about something that happened a few months ago that we all remember. But as you sort of alluded to, there have been, you know, a dozen times since then when the resistance, so to speak, has had to organize and show up and march and uh, and provide services to people who the Trump administration is hurting. How do you maintain a focus from volunteers uh, and donors, supporters uh, through the course of all the other um, stuff that happens in the news cycle? I think it's really challenging. I think, you know, last January, as we were discussing, when we organized lawyers to go to the airports after the travel ban, and then we had, you know, cases that, that went up to the Supreme Court, we were getting a ton of attention. But by the end of the year, when the third version of the travel ban was issued, when a companion refugee ban was issued, we couldn't get anybody to write about it. Um, one immigration writer at a, at a major paper told me she had taken it to her editor and her editor said, you know, everyone has travel ban fatigue. No one wants to hear about it anymore. Um, which Ugh. is a convenient thing that you can do if you're not actually someone who's affected by the travel ban is you can just sort of stick your fingers in your ears and say, oh, this isn't happening anymore. I'm, I'm interested in something else. Um, for us, it's been a, you know, outreach has been quieter where we try to keep our lawyers involved. We hired a, a pro bono director, um, which is a model that law firms use to organize their pro bono to make sure that we were sort of fully utilizing all of the thousands of lawyers that came to us wanting to assist um, and and utilizing them in a variety of ways, not just taking cases, but helping with policy briefings and litigation and organizational and operational issues. Um, and then just trying to keep our funders educated that even though the situation isn't being widely reported in the media anymore, it still exists. Um, and I think that that's probably the struggle that every movement is having and, and has historically had um, because you know, public attention to things ebbs and flows. In just a couple of years, you've helped more than 200,000 people. So I guess one thing I'm wondering is, do you ever stop and just think about the fact that you've done an impossibly good thing? And how do you process that? I don't, uh, because I am psychologically unhealthy in certain ways. And uh, <laughs> one of them, I think, is... Um, a little bit of an inability maybe to take pride in our collective accomplishments. See, I can't even say my accomplishments. I can't even own that. Um, but I, for me, you know, part of it is just my mentality that I, I'm always looking at what's next. Um, part of it is that, you know, 
there's 20 million refugees in the world. There's 65 million displaced people overall, depending on, you know, whose statistics you believe. Um, there's so much work to be done. And and I'm always just like, what's the next thing that we have to do? What's the next strategy we're going to put in place? When we get a victory, I'm most interested in how do we leverage this victory into the next seven victories? Um, and I think it makes me good at my job um, and not that happy a lot of the time, to be honest. Well, I think the world appreciates it, at least. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, so so uh, how can people get involved with what you're doing and actually genuinely help? Um, there's a bunch of ways to be involved. If you're a lawyer, you can volunteer to take a case. Um, if you're anybody, you can donate. We really, really need your money, um, especially if you have money that you don't need. We'll put it to good use. Um, people who aren't lawyers, there's still ways to volunteer. We send out action alerts when a particular bill is up for a vote or something is happening with refugees that requires um phone calls to lawmakers or op-eds. Um, all of that information is available on our website, which is just refugeerights, R-I-G-H-T-S dot O-R-G. Um, there's a bunch of information there about different ways that you can get involved. Okay, so before we go to the opposition arguments, one question that I think probably a lot of people have is whether there's additional advice that you have for somebody who is you know, passionate about something, whether it's this topic or anything else, and they just want to do something to help, but maybe they don't have an immediate background in it. What advice do you have for that person? Um, you can't see it because it's recorded, but I'm I'm nodding vigorously. I, I think if you're passionate about something and you want to dive in, you should just do it. Um, the a story that I like to tell, one of the one of the students that co-founded IREP with me um was this guy, John Finer, who had been a Rhodes Scholar. He had been a reporter with the Washington Post who had been embedded during the surge in Fallujah and a bunch of other things. And I was just, I was really intimidated by him. Um, and I didn't know anything about the Middle East. I didn't know anything about refugees. I clearly didn't know anything about the law. And I was i was really insecure about kind of what could I possibly bring to this collaboration. And then the, the first thing that we had to do was recruit volunteers at the Student Activities Fair and John hadn't done that before and didn't know how to make a, a poster. And it was this really important moment for me of realizing that, like, well, I know how to make a poster and a sign-up sheet for a student activities fair. Like, I have value add. Um, and I think, and that that's not to just harp on, on John's artistic skills, but... <laughs> But the point is that all skills are needed right now and all people are needed right now. And there's just so much work to be done across all of the different movements that you have something to contribute. Um, the fact that you want to do something and are willing to do something is in and of itself a contribution. And so my my broad advice is to pick the issue that you're passionate about. Um, don't try to spread yourself too thin amongst 87 different issues because it'll, I think, prevent you from being really effective. Find an organization that you like or a group of organizations you like who are working on that and just call them and say, you know, I want to volunteer. What can I do? Um, or if you like to write, write a letter to the editor of your local paper or um, organize a fundraiser at your house or even just like set up a Google alert 
so that in the midst of all of the crazy news about, you know, Russian interference in the election and a porn star suing the president, you're you get a reminder every day of the headlines that may not be breaking into the major papers, but of, of whatever it is you care about. Um, and you know that it's still going on and you're you're sort of kept abreast of the issue. And that's something that I say to people who want to help on refugee issues also is just like, if nothing else, you know, set a news alert so that you get a reminder every day that like, oh, there were 50 articles today about Syrian refugees and here's what they're facing. And that's still happening, even though it, it's not gaining the traction that it was in the summer of 2015. Um, but just like pick a thing and and just jump in. I promise that that you will find a way to be helpful um, and that folks who are in the movement will find a way to help you be helpful. That is a great piece of advice. I'm totally going to set up a bunch of Google alerts now because <laughs> Google didn't it, pay me to say that. I should know. <laughs> well, well, because it just it does feel like, you know, the things that you that you really care about, they it becomes uh, something that requires a lot of effort in order to stay informed on them uh, when, I mean, that that's, I guess, really the entire Bannon-Trump philosophy is just fill the system with so much stuff that nobody can stay mad about the same thing for very long. Yeah, it's just like, hey, look over there. Hey, look over there. Did you think this was happening? Because this other thing is happening and it's bigger and you should look at this. Hiring is challenging, but there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. A place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates, that place is ZipRecruiter.com slash 5-4. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right expertise and invite them to apply to your job. And it sounds like this. ZipRecruiter. sound of their powerful matching technology. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. With the results like that, it is no wonder that ZipRecruiter is the highest rated hiring site in America. And right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash 54. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash 54. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. If you're like me, the list of books you want to read or those that people suggest that you read is never ending and always expanding. You simply do not have time to read them all. Our sponsor, Blinkist, has solved your long list of must-reads once and for all. Blinkist is the only app that takes thousands of the best-selling nonfiction books and distills them down to their most impactful elements so you can read or listen to them in under 15 minutes all on your phone. With Blinkist, you will expand your knowledge and learn more in just 15 minutes than you can in almost any other way. Plus, you can listen anywhere. The Blinkist library is massive, from timeless classics like Outside the Wire. <laughs> I don't think I don't think that's in there yet. I, I don't think if your book's not published yet, which it comes out next Tuesday, August 7th. <laughs> well I don't done. think if your book is published yet. That's this Tuesday, in fact. Yeah. I don't think it's in the library. But get this. You can read 18 minutes to find your focus, master distraction, and get the right things done in just 10 minutes, Jason. That's <laughs> that quite a deal. Saved eight minutes. It's eight-minute apps. Ironically, though, uh, if you wanted to read Make People Like You in 90 seconds, that would take you 13 minutes. The world is a funny place. <laughs> But the library is massive, and I've actually been reading a book a day. It's amazing because it doesn't take very long. 
Blinkist is constantly curating and adding new titles from best of lists, so you're always getting the most powerful ideas in a made-for-mobile format. Five million people are using Blinkist to expand their minds 15 minutes at a time. Get started today. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash majority54 with the number 54 to start your free trial or get three months off your yearly plan when you join today. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash majority54 to start your free trial or get three months off your yearly plan. So as you know, uh, we end every episode by running through a quick list of the arguments that that our listeners might hear uh, from somebody around the holiday table or somebody at their workplace that that person has probably heard from Fox News or somewhere in the in the right wing noise machine. And we try and help people battle these harmful stances uh, with facts and with anecdotes and just by being able to tell a meaningful story in return that's truthful. Uh, so the first one I want to tackle with you is when when people say, well, look, Trump's uh, Muslim ban, which the president and his administration have, I think, now been calling it the travel ban, I guess, more because they realize that that is better for them to refer to it as. So when they say, look, it's a travel ban, not a Muslim ban, and it's okay, it's not racist because the Supreme Court uh, said so. In its ruling, the Supreme Court didn't express an opinion on the soundness of the policy itself. The Chief Justice did reject claims the travel ban reflects anti-Muslim bias, saying the President has the right to prevent the entry of anyone to the United States who can't be properly vetted. How do you respond to that? Well, I think if things aren't racist because the Supreme Court said so, we might still have slavery. In the 19th century, in a case called Dred Scott, the Supreme Court ruled that even if someone who was enslaved made it to a northern state where slavery was illegal, that the person was still a slave um, and could be, you know, essentially deported back to the South and and held in bondage again. They've upheld that it's okay to separate black kids and white kids in the classroom. They eventually overturned that, but it it took hundreds of years Um They upheld a decision that Japanese internment was legal and not racist or discriminatory, which they sort of claimed to overturn in the Muslim ban decision, but then strangely upheld that it was okay to ban Muslims from coming into the country, which seems totally analogous. So I I would posit that just because the Supreme Court says that something is legal um, doesn't mean that it's not really, really racist and discriminatory. Yeah, I think I think if you look over the scope of our history, uh, it's pretty clear that when it comes to issues of human rights or civil rights, uh, that oftentimes, unfortunately, we have not gotten it right the first time. And and it's sort of I would I would analogize it to like why a lot of people will say, well, look, I don't I don't buy the first version of a piece of technology. I wait till they've figured it out. And uh, and I think that there's something similar to that. I mean, when you when you look at Supreme Court cases over the course of time, it's oftentimes, unfortunately, taken us a couple of tries, uh, at least, to get it right. And and I, I do think that that is a powerful argument. If you if you say that to people and say, so what if instead we're just on version 1.0 and actually this is just wrong? Yeah, and, and I think re- the tough recall. thing is that like with a new piece of technology, you can be like, oh, it's it's flawed. I'm going to wait this out. I'm going to use my old phone until I get a new one. Like you have a choice. Um, whereas right. if you are, 
you know, a slave under the Dred Scott decision trying to escape or a Japanese person during World War II who thinks you shouldn't be interned or someone from a majority Muslim country who wants to come visit your family in the U.S., you you don't have that option to opt out. Um, so, yeah, right. we can look at it and say, oh, it'll take us a number of tries to get it right. But I think we also need to say, wow, while we're taking all of those tries, an awful lot of destruction and damage is being done. Yeah, lives are being ruined. Right. Yeah. Okay, so there's a there's this uh, piece of right-wing rhetoric that goes all the way back to the 90s, which asks, you know, would you be willing to accept this person into your home? Here is the video. New York liberals are outraged at more than half of the nation's governor saying no to an Obama administration plan to accept 100,000 refugees. But when asked if they would personally house a refugee, almost all refuse to. Now, I'm not mad at my reporters. They do a great job. But I've been saying I want my reporters to go out and do this, and I'm going to go out to people's houses and say, oh, do you support Obama wanting governors to take the refugees for Obama? And they're going to say, of course I do. And I'm going to say, okay, well, I'm going to move five refugees into your house. They're going to say, get off my porch. <laughs> 99% of you on our social media are saying you would not open up your home to a refugee family, despite all saying, you know, those pictures are so harrowing, you know, it's heartbreaking. Mm. But when push comes to shove, would you actually open your home? 99% of you wouldn't. How do you respond to that argument? I mean, I think there are sort of three basic ways to respond. The first is that you don't have to take a refugee into your home. Uh, you just have to take them into your country, and that's a really different thing. The The U.S. is 3,000 miles wide. We got almost all of that territory by force um, and by committing ethnic cleansing of the people who were already on the land. And I think that that comes with an obligation to allow people who are fleeing persecution and seeking safety, which is what the pilgrims were doing notably, um, to come settle on the land. That doesn't mean that you have to like them. That doesn't mean that they have to live in your house or or be in your living room. Um, it just means you have to say, okay, we took all over all this space and we recognize the obligation that comes with that. You know, I like my husband and I are talking about whether to have a second child and I don't even know whether I want to bring a second child into my home. Um, so I think that that's a nice bit of um, dialectical trickery that implies that, you know, there's a much more direct almost sacrifice being asked of Americans than there is. You, you do not have to house and feed the refugees and immigrants who come in. Um, I think the second thing is that, you know, we claim that we're against terrorism and that we're against the Islamic State. And a huge majority of refugees are fleeing terrorism. Um, similarly, in Central America, you know, the president likes to talk a lot about how evil MS-13 is. The people fleeing here from Central America are fleeing gang violence. Um, and then simultaneously, our attorney general is saying, oh, fleeing gang violence means that you're not a refugee. I think that if if we're serious that we want to fight things like gang violence and like terrorism and like the Islamic State, we need to be assisting the people who are trying to fight that on the front lines, who are trying to survive it, and, and providing safe haven to the people who are trying to flee that. Um, and the last point is that refugees are so screened and vetted. You, you cannot come to this country as a refugee or, or as most types of immigrant, frankly, um, without being run through security background checks by like 18 different intelligence agencies. It's a process that takes years. 
Um, it's a process that Americans don't have to go through. If you're born here, you don't get vetted. You just get to be an American because you were lucky enough to be born here. Um, and so it's unsurprising that my favorite study is one by the Cato Institute, which found that you are twice as likely to be struck by lightning as to experience violence from a refugee. Well, yeah, no, I think I think all of those are great points. And what I would add is that when the attorney general says you're not a refugee for, you know, as somebody who's fleeing gang gang violence, the president then turns around and implies that, in fact, you are a member of the gang. Which makes no sense at all. Like you're fl- you're fleeing this violence, and they do the same thing with ISIS, right? People fleeing ISIS, they imply, they flat out say, well, they they could be ISIS, uh, which makes no sense at all. Obviously, particularly with the vetting system that we have, but implicit in all of this is them trying to make Americans feel that the Muslim ban is keeping them safe. When in reality, I would argue that. Uh, the message that the Muslim ban sends not only to the world, but also to uh, people who feel disaffected and might be a a candidate for uh, radicalization and recruitment by ISIS via the internet, that it's, it's very helpful to ISIS in that regard. And as a result, it is making us substantially less safe. Yeah. I mean, the Islamic state refers to the Muslim ban as the blessed ban uh, because of what a boon it's been for them for, you know, donations and recruitment. Um, and I, you know, if if you don't help people who are trying to flee a problem, you empower the people who are causing the problem. You give them more victims and more resources and more power. And I think, you know, we can have all this rhetoric about how we're we're fighting terrorism and we're combating gang violence. Um, but it's just empty rhetoric at the end of the day. Thank you very much, Becca, for doing this. I really appreciate it. No, it was fun. Thanks so much. It was an honor to talk with you. Uh, same. Thanks a lot. A huge team candor thank you to Becca Heller for doing the show and for doing the right thing in the world. You know, my favorite part about that interview was, or what really struck me was that she's really passionate about so many things in the world, but it's only when you pick one and you double down and you focus on it that you can make such incredible change. She's affected 200,000 lives because she picked one and she focused on it. And I think it's a good lesson because a lot of people feel like, well, I have a lot of stuff I'm passionate about, so they're paralyzed by the choices. But the truth is, Becca Heller may end up making a huge difference on some other issue later in her life. It's just you do this for a while, and then at some point, maybe you focus on something else. You don't have to worry about picking one thing. How you do anything is how you do everything. Diana says that all the time. (laughs) It's one of her better sayings. Uh, An extra shout out to listener Dave Moore for suggesting that we get Becca on the show. And if you have an idea for a guest that would be an excellent match for our style of discussion, don't hesitate to write us at hellomajority54 at gmail.com. Jason, how excited are you to have your book coming out in just a few days? I can't believe it's finally happening. I'm very excited for people to read the book. I'm very excited for it to come out. I think maybe just as much I'm excited to stop selling the book <laughs> and to stop asking It's not selling when you really it. believe in the product. And if Absolutely. People, I just feel like I'm pushing it all the time and I'm excited to not be doing that anymore. I just haven't met anybody who's read it and hasn't been blown away by how authentic it is and how much they actually got out of it. So I'm excited for everybody to read it and join us. We have this private discussion on the Facebook group for the book. Uh, it's, it's an incredible place to actually have a conversation with the author about what you've read. 
How do they get into the Facebook group? Ah, they have to pre-order the book in the few days that are remaining before the book comes out and enter their receipt at jasoncanderbook.com. And then they get an invitation, right? Yep. Okay. Uh, you can follow along with Becca Heller's work on Twitter at Refugee Assist. And I'm at Jason Kander, and Diana's at Diana Kander. Oh, you wish you'd stop doing that. There's so many people following me now after I can just Why see it bad? ping, 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 because they're going to be so grossly disappointed. You're welcome. <laughs> Thanks for, they're not going to be disappointed. Thanks for listening to Majority 54. And remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.